We are in 2 Kings chapter 21. We'll also be looking at uh, 2 Chronicles. Get a little bit of his life in both of these, these chapters. In chapter 21, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, he was a child king, 12 years old. There is some indication. I'm not sure exactly what they based this on. I couldn't find anything on it, but there is a lot of references that he was a co-regent with his father for a little while. I really don't understand the sense of that. If his father was still around, why would you have a 12-year-old be a co-regent in there? So I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but there is some, some things out there that do, do make mention of that. But he, he reigned for 55 years, the longest of all the kings. And he is not just compared to evil kings of Israel or kings of Judah. This guy goes beyond that. We compare him to the nations that the Lord had cast out of the land before them. That's how bad he was. Verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. That's the uh, word there for Asherah. As Ahab king of Israel had done, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his, son's, his son pass through the fire, practice soothsaying, use witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Now if you go to the Chronicles, it says that he made his sons pass through the fire, which would mean more than one. This one says son. So is that a conflict? Well, this one may have emphasized that he took his oldest son and the, the heir to the throne and put him through the fire to burn him as an offering of sacrifice to their God. But there are also other sons that he put through that as well. So it seemed that he put his most valuable son, by their standards, on on this altar, but that also he put other sons in there. That's how much he was sold out to this. But it says he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. Now, what that basically means is a lot of the things that we think are new today had gone on back then. That the, we look at the New Age movement, and you know, some of them have this, you ever heard that term, spirit guide? I've heard the term. I don't know all the ins and outs about it. I just know it's out there. I know a little bit about what they did. They do, this is kind of like what he was getting into, the crystals, the uh, uh, horoscopes, all those things that people dabble into. Christians should not be messing with this stuff at all. Don't, be, don't even be looking at it. Some, some Christians go out there and they just, well, I just look at my horoscope just to see what it has. This. No, don't. don't. You don't need it in your head. All that's going to happen is that something happens in life that kind of goes along with that and you begin to think, oh, maybe there was something... It just, it's, it's trying to get a hold of you. Don't let it happen. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So we got the host of heaven in there and we got the Asherah in there. Can you imagine doing that? What you must think of God? 
to, she would go into his house and put these things up into the holy places. Verse 8, And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore through the, from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. So there was a promise that they would, that God would put his name on that house forever if they were careful to keep their feet in the way of the word. And they didn't do it. But he goes out and all the places that Hezekiah had torn down, beat up, removed, he brings them back, rebuilds them. So it was taken out of the minds of the children of Israel and he comes and puts it right back in. Remember Hezekiah's revival? Hezekiah's revival was such that they were revived to the point they went out and they got rid of all the idols on their own. And now he's going out there and he's rebuilding them all. Bringing them back into, the, into this type of worship. So the idolatry that Manasseh restored, it was the Asherah. That was a Canaanite goddess. There was a lot of sexual perversion from what I understand from in the worship of this one. The host of heaven, these were gods of the Assyrians. Looking at the stars, all the things that were involved in the stars telling the future and things of that nature. And then Molech, the Canaanite god, he goes under uh, the name Kamosh as well uh, for different, different people have different names for him. But uh, and a lot of people, if you go up online, if you look this guy up, they're doing a whole lot of things tying this, this guy into Planned Parenthood and, and abortion and things like that. And well, they didn't have the technology to abort a fetus in the womb, so it seems like this was the next next uh, thing they would go to. I saw one person they they were uh, comparing this that once you bring in the the the, the gods that had the sexual worship, well, now you got a lot of babies that you didn't plan for or don't want, so you got to have something to do with it. So they bring in a god that you can sacrifice them to, and that certainly could be what it is. And I don't know, are are we doing any better by having a Doctor, do a procedure. And then the life of that baby. But these are the things that he brought them into. Put an image of the Asherah into the temple. Set up the altars of the host of heaven there. Now, of course, God always sends people around to let you know you're not doing right. If he cares about you at all, he's going to send people around and tell you you're not doing right. But they paid no attention to the word. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So the king, this is the phraseology it uses here and in Chronicles, that he seduced them to do evil. So that would mean that they weren't going to go in that direction without help. He helped them to go in that direction. It wasn't just that these people were bent on evil and he let them go. He's basically saying, come on, let's go. And leading them in there. He seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Not the other kings. The nations that God had kicked out of the land, Israel is now doing worse stuff than they did. So if God removed them for that sin, how can he not remove them? the Israelites? Can you imagine the Canaanites standing out there, wait a minute, you removed us for that and you're letting them do What? Are you kidding me? But they paid no attention to God's word or his prophets. In verse 9, But they paid no attention. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke 
by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Remember the plumb line? That's what he's talking about. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Now, you remember from the Sunday morning series, the four stages of correction. There is the internal correction. That's when you hear the word and you make the internal adjustments. As uh, we're taught in the New Testament, judge yourself so that you be not judged. If I judge myself according to the word, then I won't have to be judged. I can make that correction myself. These are small Little incremental change you got to do when you're driving on down the road. It's a whole lot easier to take your car and just make little adjustments here and there. Just, you know, a little turn, a little turn, a little turn, something like that. But if you're not paying attention and you got your attention on something else and the person in the passenger seat all of a sudden says, Hey, <laughs> look out. And you look up and you're about ready to run into something. And you either slam on the brakes or quickly turn the, that's a, that's a, you made that adjustment yourself. That was a self-adjustment. But it's only because somebody else intervened and hollered out and got your attention and got you to do something, but it was a much more drastic one. You know, people are, got shifted around in the car, stuff got thrown around that you probably didn't want to have thrown around, things like that. That's the external correction. That's when something else has to come in. You're not doing it yourself. I'm not listening to that still small voice. I'm not yielding to the correction of the Father. Something else comes in. Then the third stage is the rebuke. That's when we're not just correcting now. We're, telling, we're, we're in there rebuking you. You are doing wrong. And it's more public. And we don't like it. As a, my experience has been, most people who reach that stage, once you rebuke them, they usually walk off. Very seldom do people get rebuked. And just... Now, I have seen it. I have, I have seen it. We had it uh, way early on in the church's history. We had to... We had a person who was in leadership. We had a uh, not only a rebuke, we had to get into subtraction. And uh, they took it and made the, made the corrections. And eventually we got them back into their position. Uh, does not happen very often. <laughs> Doesn't happen too often. Remember some of the televangelists? Uh, one person, they got into the sin and uh, people came on by and they, they rebuked them and they refused all that. And then they eventually lost their ministry and um, the organization they were under said, um, you need to take two years off. And they said, well, forget that. I'll go out on my own. And see, no, not everybody wants to do that. They don't always, uh, always like those kind of things. But that's the stage that we have to go. And if we don't listen to the first correction, we don't listen to the second stage of correction, when someone comes in from outside and says, hey, this is going on. You need to quit it. We are going to get into the stage of rebuke. And it's not the person's fault who's rebuking. It's our fault for not listening. We need to make sure we take care of it. We talked about some of those things last week with Hezekiah in the area of pride. Pride was a problem for him. 
And we saw some of the signs, that, some of the signals that come up to tell you about whether you're in pride or not. We've got to be careful about that because too many Christians fall into pride. And once you fall into pride, you're resistant to people telling you anything. And you're resistant to even seeing some of the stuff. And uh, I'll tell you, I told you some of that story from, from last week and the two people involved. And one person was very blatantly involved in pride and the other person was very much trying to protect the people in the, in the group that are being affected by this one. And um, that, that pride will mess you up. Keeps you from hearing, keeps you from listening, keeps you from making adjustments. And if you keep going in that direction, you won't like the outcome and you'll blame everybody else for it. But it's no one's but yours. David, what did he do? He got into pride. But when, the, when he got that rebuke, he said, I have sinned. And he listened to the Lord. Whatever the Lord says here is, is going to be good. That's the direction we have to we have to go. Don't like it. But you see, the better, better thing to do is to make the adjustments in the first stage. That's the best thing to do. If you do that, then other people don't have to come along and, and make judgment or make rebuke. or, or think. That's the best thing to do. Do it there. If you're starting to see some of that rudeness come out, if you're starting to see some of that harshness come out, you need to understand, I need to make a change. If you don't, God's going to come through it and do it another way. Guarantee you, you won't like it. No one does. No one should. We shouldn't like that. The children of Israel here are not going to like what's coming next. But they've gone out this way themselves. Where do we leave off at? Verse 15. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin by which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we don't really know who all the innocent blood was. But what we do know from some of the writings that were done is that one of those persons is Isaiah. Manasseh put Isaiah to death. Well, you've got to understand that Isaiah is one of those ones who's going to be in his face about this thing, talking to him about it, rebuking him about it. He doesn't like it. I heard the, the, the stories about him being sawn in two. If you look up on the internet, there is a story that's actually written way back when. It's weird. It's just absolutely weird. I don't really put too much credit into it. Just because it was written a long time ago doesn't mean it was, it was right. <laughs> it's some kind of a thing that Isaiah, um, uh, Isaiah is accused of from the king of, uh, because he said, I saw the Lord. And Manasseh was mad at him for that. He says, no, no one can see the Lord and live, so you must be lying. Well, Manasseh to me doesn't seem like he's a stickler for the word. So, see, I, I write it off for that, that part right there. He's not a stickler for the word. He doesn't care about Jehovah God at this stage anyway. He doesn't care about Jehovah God at all. So why would he care that somebody said, I saw the Lord? But it says that he did that, and Isaiah said, well, I'm not going to be able to convince this guy. And so he, he uh, pronounced the Lord's name that no one was supposed to say. And when he did that, he became uh, this tree opened up or somehow he became part of this tree, came into the side of this tree and so the, the king commanded the tree be cut down and thereby cut him in half. Now to me that's just a weird story. That's, that's not how things go about. So I don't put a whole lot of credit in it but it does seem that he did kill him whether it was by cutting him in two or however it was that he did it. It does say that he uh, shed a lot of innocent blood 
And Isaiah seems to have been one of those ones that was included. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon uh, reigned in his place. Well, he was not buried with the kings. He was buried in a garden in his own house. So it's a nice place, I guess, to get buried, but it's not with the kings. He was not given a place of honor. We go over to Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 33. The verse I referred to was in verse 6. And he also caused his sons, plural, to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. Same as the, the rest of the in, uh, kings there. In verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. God will always send people. Whether you listen or not is up to you. Too often people are not listening. Too often Christian people are not listening to the rebuke that we're getting from the, from the Lord. We're not hearing it. And we've got to, to hear, we've got to hear the chastening of the Lord. If he corrects us, if we keep going on in that, in that direction that we were going, it's going to be for bad. Because most people that go in the area of pride, most people go in the way of, of doing these things they're not supposed to become harsh, become rude, but they begin to damage other Christians along the way. And God is concerned about that. He's concerned when we begin to damage other Christians. I've seen it enough times when church leaders go bad and do bad things to other people. Have bad attitudes. It's not good. We've got to make sure that we, we judge ourselves. We've got to make sure we take care of that. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. They would not just Manasseh would not listen. The people would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now, there's a whole mess of stuff inside that verse here. First off, it's the Assyrians that come. I've heard this said that if you ever see the pictures of an army leading the king away, they carry him away with hooks. They put these, these hooks in their body and they, they carry him away. If you want to know who it is that's doing it, if it is an Assyrian, they put the hook in the lip. And they carry you away with the hook in the lip because you're not going to resist too much because if you pull anyway, that's, that's real tender skin. Uh, now, if the Babylonians do it, and they're going to lead you away. They put a hook in the nose. Now, both sound painful. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound good at all. You, you cringe at it. But they're not, they are not concerned about the comfort level of the king that they have conquered. And Manasseh was warned. He didn't listen. Now, Assyria wasn't really supposed to come back over here. But they, they came on back because Manasseh had done these evil things. But here's a real interesting part. Under Hezekiah... Last week, you remember who they sent the delegation from? Group Babylon. Babylon is the group that was watching the, the stars. And when the sun gave that sign, caught their attention. So they came looking. And so it's the Babylonians that do so. Now here in this one, the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Why not Nineveh? Isn't Nineveh the capital of Assyria? And if Babylon sent delegation, well, wouldn't that seem that Assyria was not under them? Remember, they were looking for someone to team up to to take out Assyria. 
they were hoping Israel was going to be maybe one of those, one of those people. But they just had weakened them quite a, quite a bit. So they sent this, so at that point, under Hezekiah, Babylon is free. But here, he's taken to Babylon. Not Nineveh. Well, that would have seemed, seemed that Babylon is now under the Assyrian people. So I went and looked up some dates for you. The uh, city of Babylon fell to the Assyrian control in 689 B.C. Hezekiah dies at about 687 B.C. Now, the delegation was sent somewhere around his 15th, 16th year, right? So he had about 14, 13 more years to go. So Babylon falls in Hezekiah's second to the last year, towards the end of his reign. So when they sent the delegation... They were free. Then they came under that, that control before, before Hezekiah dies. They re, so they fall in 689. They rebelled and were captured again in 653 to 648. So that's about roughly 40 years. 40 years later. How long did Manasseh reign? 55. So here's the scenario. Here's, well, let's, let's continue to go on. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Nineveh falls to Babylon and the Medes in 612 B.C. The Medes joined up with Babylon and they helped to overthrow Nineveh. And that's when uh, Assyria falls. Jerusalem will fall to Babylon in in 597 B.C. If you just want to get a timeline on that. Jerusalem will fall to Babylon in 597. I did have that in your outline, but had to drop out a couple of things. That was one of them. Second Chronicles 33.12 now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. All right, now, now picture this. Assyria has come in and they conquered Jerusalem, took the king captive put the king in Babylon and he repents and God restores him back to his kingdom. Whose control is he under? He's under Assyrian control. How does he get out of the prison? How does he get out of from under Assyrian control to go back to Jerusalem? And how is Jerusalem not under Assyrian control? Don't you think there ought to be a story there? There ought to be a story about this. It's not told in any place in the Bible. The Bible does not tell the story of how Manasseh comes back into into the throne. So I looked all over the internet. I could find zero on this. No, there is no story that talks about it. It just seems like, well, it happened. How does that happen? How do you get out of a prison... To go back to a city, take your kingdom back, take your throne back, and go on like nothing happened. How does that happen? So here's how we figured. Uh, this is my story. No one else has this story. I can't tell you that it's right. I can't tell you that it's wrong. I, this is just my story on what's going on with, with all this stuff, all right? So let's go on back here um, to the dates. 689 B.C., Hezekiah, that's when he... He, he dies in 687. 
Babylon falls to Assyrian control in 689. They rebelled against Assyrian control in 653. These are, no matter who you go to, you're going to have dates that are probably very a year or two, something like that. So I just stuck with the same source so all the dates are, are the same, all right? So if you find other ones that say 652 or 654, that's probably out there. I'm just staying with, the, with these ones right here. So 653, they rebelled. It took five years for Assyria to get that rebellion squashed and put them back under that control. Five years. In that five-year time, I propose that when Assyria is kicked out of Babylon, that Babylon released, releases the Assyrian prisoners. Because he's not a Babylonian prisoner. He's an Assyrian prisoner. And they release them. And they send them on back. Now remember that Babylon under Hezekiah, they sent the delegation and brought the present. They're eyeing this place up. They want to take it. But we're going to be nice to you. And so they send them on back probably thinking, we're coming for you. We're not going to tell you this. We're coming for you. You go on back there and get some more wealth and we're going to come on back there and, and get that. So they send him on back. And so he comes on back and takes up his, his throne. And Assyria is messing with Babylon. They're not messing with Jerusalem. Jerusalem's nothing. They're not a threat. But Babylon is. So all the Assyrian forces are dedicated to fight this this uh, rebellion against Babylon. So I suppose that Manasseh, during this five-year period, is when he gets freed. He may have just been put into prison months or maybe a year or some kind of a short period of time before that rebellion. So he repents to God. He does a good job repenting too because <laughs> the Word of God says he, he really repented. He was, he, uh, how does it put it here? Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord. Now, most people will implore the Lord when they're in affliction. And humbled himself greatly. Not just a little bit. Humbled himself greatly. Doesn't mean he put himself in a humbling position. It means he truly took that proud heart, crushed it, humbled himself before God. And prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication. And who brought him back? God brought him back. So that would almost to me mean that God was in his hand, was in Babylon, throwing off Assyrian rule, even though it was only temporarily, to get his man out. And then afterwards, he let him come back underneath the the control of Nineveh again. Until eventually, they would come and they would become the, the world power that they would eventually be. So that's my story. No one else has one. I couldn't find one up there on the, on the internet at all. So that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Now I'm staying with that one right there. But it seems to make sense because it sure seems like there ought to be a story here. I mean, this is a miraculous thing. A king who was taken prisoner is released. Goes back and takes his kingdom with apparently not any problem from Assyria. And what's Assyria usually do to people when they when they take them over. They come in and they, y'all leave it. Come on. We're going to take you and put you in other places. So before they got a chance to do that, 
Babylon rises up and they have to mess with that and never get themselves back over to deporting Judah, which helped to preserve them. Boy, how important was it that Manasseh repent? So God heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. <clears throat> I hoped he would have known that he was God when he was repenting. Who else are you repenting to? <laughs> Verse 14, After this he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of, of Gihon in the valleys as far as the entrance to the fish gate and it enclosed Ophel. And he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. How can you do that if you're under Assyrian rule? You think the Assyrians are going to let you put military captains and rebuild walls and defenses? And No. Assyria seems to be gone. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he cast them out of the city. So he comes on back and all the things he set up, he took them down. Gathered them all up and basically the description of this is you put them in the back of a truck Drive it on outside the city and dump them. And so they were all dumped outside here. But, notice this, they are not destroyed. They are dumped. When Hezekiah did this, he destroyed stuff. When Josiah comes up, he destroys stuff. What's he do? Takes it out back, puts it in the shed. Doesn't destroy it. Verse 16, He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. See, that's a little different from his father. His father let it be willingly. He said, no, you all are going to do this now. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, because he didn't take them down, but only to the Lord their God. <laughs> so, we're, we're taking the altars that we used to sacrifice things to pagan gods and now it's going to be okay because we're only going to sacrifice to the Lord God. See, some of his doctrine is a little messed up here. He repented, but he didn't get his doctrine right. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the, of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespasses and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled, immediately, uh, indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. Well, we don't have those. So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. And Ammon's not going to be a good cookie at all. He's not going to reign very long. We'll cover him the next time we're together on that. We'll probably uh, loop, loop him in with Josiah because there is not a whole lot on him and not a whole lot worth spending time on for this guy. But here's the question we left you with on Sunday in the bulletin. And if you're up there on the internet and Facebook, how was it that Hezekiah's revival didn't last? Because his was not just a surface revival. His was all the way down to the heart where these people were worshiping God because they wanted to. And these people got rid of idols because they wanted to. And these people got rid of high places because they wanted to. That's a different, different type of revival than most of the ones that we've seen. So how was it that it didn't last? So we put three words in here for you. Three words 
to sum this all up. Pleasure, pressure, or pursue. Pleasure, pressure, or pursue. What Hezekiah did was he got them into a place of pursuit. They were pursuing God. They were going after God. And as long as they were going after God, things were good. But as soon as they stopped pursuing God, then all the other things begin to come up. Take a look at some of these scriptures. Romans 14, verse 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Let us pursue the things which make for peace. They're not just going to happen. You've got to go after them. 1 Corinthians 14.1. You know this one real well. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. You've got to pursue love. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. We get into pleasure, we get into pressure, we, we pursue what's good for us. The Bible tells us to pursue what's good for all. 1 Timothy 6.11 But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Pursue these things. He's talking to Timothy. Timothy, a pastor. Timothy, you, man of God, flee these things. Those things I just listed, get, run for, get away from them. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Second Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he tells them this in 1 Timothy. He tells them this in 2 Timothy. He keeps reminding them about this. Because you must stay in pursuit. You must stay in pursuit. Hebrews 12 and 14 Pursue peace with all people. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. First Peter 3 and verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The Christian walk is all about what you are pursuing. And with Hezekiah, he got them pursuing after the things of God. He got them pursuing after the things that benefited God. Not the things that benefited themselves. The things that benefited God. You stop pursuing God and His traits and the pleasures and pressures of this world will work on you. As long as you stay pursuing the things of God, you will be unaffected by them. As soon as you stop, they begin to have an effect. They begin to weigh you down. Now, In light of all that, think about this as we read this scripture. Mark chapter 4, verse 14. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. They never got off to a pursuit. Verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They pursue it. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for the world's sake, immediately they stumble. Another word you can put on that is pressure. When pressure comes down, 
they stop pursuing. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things <clears throat> enter in choking the word. And it, the word, becomes unfruitful. Pleasures. But these are the ones sown on the good ground who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundred. They pursue the word. And that's what we have to get into. Under Hezekiah, they were pursuing the things of God. As long as they were pursuing the things of God, these other things weren't, weren't a big deal. But when you stop pursuing the things of God, that's when things begin to, to come around. Now, you all know my love and affection for running. I've learned more about my Christian walk through running than any other activity, any other thing that I have done outside of studying the Word of God. It has been incredible. Most of what I learned, I can't teach. You have to go through it. You have to, you have, to have a, uh, an experience. I am convinced. I'll wait until I get to heaven to find out. I am convinced Paul was a runner. <laughs> Absolutely convinced. I'll wait till I get to heaven and ask him. But, you know, he went a lot of places. I just don't think he walked there. I think he was doing some running. <laughs> you want to travel with Paul? You've got to be a runner. Come on, we're covering some distance today. We're, <laughs> we're, we're putting in some miles. Let's go. Because he, he refers to running in a lot of ways that I think you need to have some inside information on in order to, to, to see it all. But one thing I can tell you about it is this. There's... A, there's always that thing, how do you define a runner? What's a runner, what's a jogger, and things like this. And for the longest time, I did accept the definition of speed. That if you were under eight minutes per mile, you were a runner. That was, uh, I, I accepted that. But I, I, learned a, I learned after a while, it's not that. Running, running is a mentality. It's a, because it's what you put yourself through, what you go through. No one can, no, and if you are not a runner, you will never know what a runner goes through. Never. You have no chance, no comprehension, no ability to understand what they go through. Because most people relate to running, and when they go out and they run, you know, it's hard to breathe, my legs hurt, stuff like that. That's nothing. It is nothing. The run, a, a real good trained runner breaks through that way, long, long time ago. They are broken into levels of pain that most people cannot even fathom and shattered them and have gone on. You don't know the type of pain. I don't know it either. I'm not saying that I, I know. I, I've only broken through some levels of pain. You look at these guys who run a marathon, running it at a five-minute mile pace, 26.2 miles at that pace. The control you have to have over your mind, the control over your body, the authority you have to have over your body, all these kind of things. <clears throat> it's, it's intense. It's intense. <clears throat> and it's hard for most people to understand this, but running is 90% mental and 10% physical. As much, and everybody thinks about it as a physical adventure. It's far more mental. Far more mental than physical. Most runners are able to run faster than they do. What holds them back is their mind. It's a matter of getting that, that control. But anyway, you take a look at the... the, the you, people laugh at me at, uh, for, for things because of the weather I'll go out into. Because, but you see, the whole thing is, as long as you pursue, none of that matters. 
In fact, you get mad at it for even coming up. Don't you even think you're going to get me to stay in. You're looking for, I, I look for cold weather. I look for bad weather. I look for ice storms. I, whatever it is, I look for it. Come on, you are not going to stop me. I'm going to get out there, I'm going to run, and I'm going to laugh at your face. <laughs> now see, that's a mentality that you get into. But there is, none of that stuff can discourage me until I stop. If I stop running, if I stop going out every day, if I begin to take that excuse and say, well, I'm not going to run today. And, and after a while, it begins to wear on you. And well, you know, this and that. And, these, and you begin to, to wear down. There are many people who used to run a lot who run none. Why? Because they stopped pursuing. And the pressures and the pleasures caught up with them. And that's what happened here. This is what we've got to be careful about with our Christian walk. You have got to continue to pursue God every single day. All those verses, all those things to pursue. Pursue peace. How many Christians bring turmoil, disrupt, have angry things to say, are not edifying? All the, all the words out of their mouth are not edifying. He's a Christian. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about Christian people. You stop pursuing God. You stop pursuing the things for peace. You stop pursuing love. You stop pursuing the things that benefit the kingdom. No, 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 I'm still pursuing. No, you're not. Because the word of God says, pursue peace, pursue love, pursue spiritual gifts, pursue the things that benefit all, not just the things that benefit you. These are the things. How many other things that were listed in there? In those verses, how many times did it say pursue peace? Wasn't that one of the most frequently things you saw? And yet, how many Christians, they open their mouth and there's no peace in it. They cause turmoil. They cause distress. These are not good. These are not helpful things. We've got to be, be careful. Because what has happened is we have left our pursuit and the pressures have gotten into us. I'm feeling pressured to perform. I'm feeling pressured to do certain things. I'm feeling pressured. We're giving into that. We're not pursuing the things of God anymore. Or we got our own pleasures. Well, I'd rather do that. I really don't feel like doing that. If I gave into my feelings, folks, when it's five degrees outside and it's snowy and it's windy, my feelings are just like yours. Why in the world do you want to go out there? But you see, you take those feelings and you say, you will go out. Not only that, you will enjoy it. <laughs> I had no challenges this year at all. I mean, there is not a single bit of... The closest thing I got to a challenge was the blizzard, and that was not even... To me, that was not even a challenge. It was, it was what, 20-some degrees? It was, it was pretty warm. The wind was blowing. The snow was coming down, but it was... It, to me, challenges are... When wind chills are in the minus 30 range, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. But that's, this, is, this is not. Now, you, your challenge might be higher. It's, that's fine. I, I still think about that guy in Chicago. He's, he's my hero right now. No shirt, no pants, just shorts. If it's really cold, he puts on gloves. He's my hero right now. <laughs> I've not attained to that. This is Chicago. This is not Pennsylvania. 
I don't know how you how you do that because you know my torso. I I, I like I like a torso that's warm. <laughs> I I don't like having wind. I stop to keep the wind from getting in there. It's mm, that's just that's just not good. But you see, if you if you stop pursuing it, then those things begin to weigh you down, and you begin to to think, hmm, hmm, maybe I. Maybe I pursue what I want to do here. I don't really feel like, I mean, that's going to put me out. I don't really want to do that. Or we let people know, you're putting me out. I'll do this for you. But, you know, you're putting me out. You owe me one. Really? Can we say that to God? God sent his son. His son died on the cross. And we want to say, you owe me one because I'm a little inconvenienced there. No. We got to make sure. If we are not constantly in pursuit, and this is what this is the thing I know. I, I know I, I have had many a running friend who has dropped out. Many a running friend. Many a running friend who not only has dropped out, they got a lot bigger. They could not run now. They're three times the size they were before when I know. They're not going to go out there and they're not going to. How did that? How did I, you used to love it? You used to love to go out and run. I remember we used to go out and we used to run together. I remember we just, I remember you, what happened? Well, I don't know. And I just began to describe things, you know, just, just fell off and just didn't seem to have the opportunity, just didn't seem to have the desire and all these things. Folks, there are things that will weigh upon you in your Christian walk and you will stop pursuing love and you will stop pursuing peace and you'll stop pursuing joy, and you'll stop pursuing spiritual gifts, you'll stop pursuing the good of everyone around. And the pressures from the world, they're always here. You just don't feel them when you're pursuing God. You just don't feel them. But if you start to feel them, you've, you've not pursued God as much. Somehow, you've fallen off. The revival that Hezekiah did should have lasted the, through this but you remember those wording? I've never saw this wording before in Scripture. And it's in both accounts. Chronicles and Kings. Hezekiah seduced them to do more evil than all the nations that were before him. Manasseh, I'm sorry. Manasseh seduced them. Hezekiah had, had led them in a direction where they were pursuing God on their own said, Manasseh seduced them. In other words, he enticed them. He said, why pursue? Take it easy. Sit back. Look at this. We've got this God over here, and look at how you're allowed to worship this God. Doesn't that look fun? Well, that's a whole lot better than what we're doing. He stopped pursuing. All you have to do is get him to slow down a little bit. Slow down just a little bit. And you become conscious of all this stuff. No time in my life have I ever become more aware of that than when you were running in the snow or my least favorite weather, 32 degrees and raining. Hate that. Oh, it's terrible. Especially when the wind's blowing. But you see, it's that first mile that's the hardest. As long as you keep moving through that first mile, you finally start to feel a little warmer. You get through the second mile, and now you almost feel warm. You keep on going, and now the warmth is beginning to get through your entire body. 
But if you stop, all that cold from outside begins to settle in. And all you feel is cold. Then you're away from home. What are you going to do? Call somebody. Help. Come and get me. There I am. <laughs> but you see, the whole thing is, if you keep moving, if you keep going, you will, after a while, you are not even aware of rain or snow. It just bounces right off of you because you're generating heat. Stuff is melting. I've had times I've come in and you know, hair is frozen, mustache is frozen, <laughs> and I feel good. I feel good. I, I look terrible, I guess, but my family, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but if you stop, all that stuff that's been working on you all this time begins to have an effect. If you stop pursuing God, you won't even notice it. <coughs> but you stop pursuing love. You stop pursuing the things that are for the kingdom. You become angry easier. Become distracted. Become short with people. You're looking at how this is affecting you all the time instead of how is it affecting the kingdom of God. You look at how you're being inconvenienced and put out instead of what can I do to help my father. We've lost sight that Jesus Christ inconvenienced himself for 33 and a half years. And especially that last day. Oh. We forget that. We lose sight of it. And we've stopped pursuing and when we do that, we are just as vulnerable as the children of Israel were under Manasseh. Don't let it happen. Understand, there are pressures and there are pleasures that are trying to pull you in, but you've got to keep pursuing. You've got to keep going after God. Those verses we put in there, I hope you, you check them out again. I hope you keep rereading them. Pursue love. Pursue peace. Pursue the things that benefit the body, that are good for all. Pursue these things. Don't pursue what's good for you. Pursue what's good for the kingdom. When you pursue those things, the pressures, the pleasures of this world, they won't attract you. They won't pull you down. You'll soar above them but only if you stay in pursuit. Father, we give you the glory. You have called us to a life of pursuits, things that we can pursue that are good. We want to keep our eyes on those things. The enemy wants to get us enticed to look into other things because he knows that once we become distracted, it is easier for us to be subdued. So, Father, I thank, thank you that you, by your Spirit, keep correcting us. Keep exhorting us on your word. That we can make these corrections when we need them. That we can stay in pursuit of the things of God. Thank you for the help that you give us with your Holy Spirit. That you give us with your word. Every single day, we want to pursue you. Every single day. Not to pursue the things that are good for us, but the things that you've called us to, the things that are good for you. When we do that, we don't have to suppress anger, rudeness, 
bitterness. We don't have to fight them down because they aren't present. Because we're in pursuit of you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.